You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. John chapter 12, verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will fill us with light, Father, as we look to your word. We pray, Father, that you would be pleased to teach us and bless us this morning as we uh, do desire to hear your voice. As you speak from your word, speak to our hearts, we pray, O Father, and teach us, O Father. Search our hearts and know us. Your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. We're able to, able to, to, to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. And we know that you can discern, you do discern. The word discerns the thoughts and, and thoughts and intentions of our hearts, O oh Father. Do this work, O oh Father. Do this discerning work so that as we look to your word, Father, we will have the realization that you know us and that you search us. And you do this, O oh Father, for our good and Father, we pray that we will find encouragement. We pray, Father, that we will find um, refreshment, O oh Father, by your word. We pray, O oh Father, that we will find uh, life afresh in your word. So, Lord, we look to you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. There's a, an important phrase in our text this morning, and the phrase I have in mind is in verse 36. Uh, probably for most of you, it's in the second line, and it's the phrase sons of light, uh, a little phrase. As I have been preparing for this week, I couldn't get past that phrase, and I thought, I think it would be worth our while to spend some time uh, on this marvelous phrase. So what I want to do this morning is really um, work our way down, explain what we need to explain in order to work our way down to that phrase, and then I would like to spend some time exploring the meaning of this rich phrase, uh, namely the phrase, sons of light. And if we look up to verse 27, uh, there we see uh, Jesus. He is um, he's assessing the assignment that he has. Um, and as he is assessing the assignment, which really at this point in time is now only hours away, uh, he comes right and says, now my soul is troubled and I think all of us know the story. We know the suffering that's ahead of Jesus. Uh, we know the many things that await him that 
within days he is going to submit himself to the cruelty and the wickedness of men. He's going to receive a, uh, a trial that is a, a fraudulent a trial. He is going to be brutally beaten. He's going to be criminally charged. He's going to be publicly dis disgraced. He's going to be forsaken by his disciples. He's going to be crucified, and he's going to die. And um, we get all of that from, from the movies. Um, you know, you, you, you watch the movie, The Passion of Christ, you, you'll get all of that. Uh, but one thing that the movies, I think, uh, fail to do justice to is that which is most painful for Jesus. Uh, it's, 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 it's probably hard for us to imagine, but what is most painful for Jesus is not the physical part of it. What's most painful for Jesus is the interruption in his delight of the Father that will have to occur out of necessity as he begins to assume the records of those whom he has come to save. That is by far and large the most painful part for Christ, which the movies don't capture. They focus on the brutal beating. They focus on the physical part. Uh, and that, I, I don't mean to diminish that in any way, but we see in verse 27 the incredible love that Jesus has for the Father because as he is assessing his assignment and there his soul is troubled, and that trouble, that, that is a powerful word that's used right there. Uh, he is in uh, emotional anguish at this point. And it's not because of the physical uh, beatings that are ahead of him. It's because of his deep love for the Father and what he must undergo. And here we see how deep his love for the Father is because he says, he complains in verse 27, my soul is greatly troubled, but what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. For this purpose I've come to this hour. And he says in verse 28, glorify your name. Glorify your name, O Lord. And as I've said several times through this series, what wins, what wins is Jesus' love for the Father. Uh, what wins is his love for the Father. And his love is so deep, pure and holy, that it must express itself in the glorification of the Father. Uh, and it's hard for us to get our minds around that. Um, but as we grow in grace, we will. God will start to put our minds around that. One, one test uh, for our spiritual growth and grace is this. How much does the glorification of the Father mean to us? How much does it mean to us that the Father be glorified? And that is one test. Uh, many of you are in the medical community, and, you know, people come in with various ailments, and what do you do? You run tests to try to find out what's wrong. This is a spiritual test that we can run ourselves. How serious am I about the glory of the Father? And for that matter, the glory of the Son and the glory of the Holy Spirit. And these kinds of tests will, um, will indicate to us where we are. And, of course, we're always going to be farther. Uh, I, I think most of us, I can say all of you, I know you well enough to know that when you run these kinds of tests, it's always going to be less than what you desire it to be, isn't it? What do we do with that? Uh, we go to the Father who loves and delights to bless, you know, and we go to him with this posture, understanding that he is, he is always more willing to bless us 
and more willing to receive us than we are to go to him. Um, so now what does Jesus say? He says, Father, glorify your name in verse 28. And then a voice comes from heaven and the father says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And last time we looked at that, that wonderful word that, that happens there from, uh, from the father. And uh, we stopped right there. But in verse 29, uh, we, we learn of a crowd, the crowd that stood there. Now, the crowd that stood there heard, they heard it said, or they heard the voice, if you will, and they said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to them. So here we learn of a crowd that is present as Jesus is saying these things. And what we learn about this crowd is that they lack the spiritual discernment to hear the voice. They don't hear the voice. It may remind us of the Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road, which I hope to make it far enough along to get to uh, today, where also he hears a voice, but those who were with him were unable to make out what it said. So here's this crowd, and they're lacking the discernment to, to make out just what is said. Some think it thundered. Others think an angel is speaking to Jesus. And, of course, we could stop and make application with that right there, that the Word of God is certainly spiritually discerned, isn't it? We have all of these efforts um, with all these new modern translations of the Bible, and you have all these efforts to try to retranslate the Bible and try to make it easier to read and easier to understand. And, and quite frankly, I, I really um, I think that for the most part, if we were still studying the old King James translation, we'd be just as far ahead because... The fact of the matter is, if we were used to it, we would be just that. We'd be used to it. Um, all of us are capable of understanding uh, the words that are in there. And uh, the issue isn't really about that. Um, it's a spiritual issue. And there's no translation that can overcome that. Um, it's largely dismissed or unknown or unbelieved today. But the fact is... We don't see until the Lord gives us eyes to see. And uh, the Bible is not really going to make a lot of sense until that happens, any more than this voice coming from heaven. These words are pretty easy to understand. I think it's pretty easy to understand. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. I don't think there's any uh, multiple, uh, there's no six-syllable words there that are never used ever, um, but they're unable to make it out. Why? It's spiritually discerned. It's spiritually discerned. But yet, <laughs> there is a level of spiritual discernment amongst this crowd. I think it's important for us to pay attention to this because we live in a day where as soon as someone begins to express any level of spiritual discernment, people are very quick to say that, you know, Ernie over here, I think, he, I think Ernie's a believer. I think Ernie's become a believer. Why? Well, he said this, and he's starting to show a little bit of spiritual discernment. I think, he's become a, I think he's become a believer. We need to be cautious about that. We need to be careful about that, because this crowd actually has some spiritual discernment here. Some will say, well, where is it? Well, look at verse 34. The crowd answers Jesus, and they say, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. Now, is that a true statement or is that a false statement? It's a true statement. And where did they hear it from? Well, they've heard it from the laws used in its most broadest sense here to encompass the entire Old Testament. And um, it's, it's, you know, 
there's a lot of passages. Uh, you don't have to turn to them all, but I'd like to read a couple of them to you. There are numerous passages in the Old Testament that speak of one who is to come, who is going to have, who is going to be eternal in nature. Um, you could think you don't need to turn there, but 2 Samuel 7 would be one place. It's the place where we get uh, the Davidic covenant from, where God is making a covenant with David. And in uh, verse 12, he says that, to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Okay, David's going to have a son. His son's going to establish. His kingdom will be established. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So there, um, this word forever, um, forever is a long time, isn't it? Uh, forever is a very long time. Um, now we could think of Psalm 110.4. If you want to turn there, that's fine. Uh, Psalm 110.4. Psalm 110.4 verse 4 would be another place. Um, you'll recognize the verse. The reader of the New Testament recognizes these verses. In Psalm 110 verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Uh, speaking of the one who is to come, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, as New Testament readers, we don't think much about that because we know chapter 7 of Hebrews, that's developed by the author to the letter of Hebrews, and we don't think much about it. But these guys don't have Hebrews 7. They don't. Uh, and that's why I'm saying there's some spiritual discernment going on here. Um, there's certainly some spiritual discernment taking place. Um, they don't have Hebrews. They don't have it. It hasn't been written yet. We could go to Isaiah 9. This is one you may be even more familiar with. Isaiah 9. We have these great passages of the Old Testament that speak of the Messiah. And, you know, verse 6, very well known. We hear this a lot around Christmas time, and rightfully so. Uh, we should hear this a lot around Christmas time. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. There you see the eternal nature of this one who is to come. And, uh, of course, Matthew is applying these verses, many of these verses, uh, to Christ, but these guys don't have Matthew, do they? They don't have Matthew. Uh, we could go to Ezekiel, a difficult book. Ezekiel is a difficult book. Um, to Ezekiel 37, if there's a chapter in Ezekiel that, we're, that we know anything about, it's likely to be chapter 37. That's the chapter about the dry bones, you know, and uh, maybe some of us used to sing songs about the dry bones and um, Tammy could probably get the song going for us, but uh, please don't ask her to because she'll kill me after the service. Um, but you know those vacation Bible school songs about the uh, dry bones. But if you look at verse 25 in Ezekiel 37, they shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, their prince, Forever, There you have this eternal. There's other passages that we could go to. Well, 
And that takes us back to the crowd. What, are the, what is the crowd saying to Jesus? They're saying, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And I, 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 it seems to me that they're demonstrating uh, really um, some significant spiritual discernment. I can't imagine. It's impossible for me to imagine because I've always had a New Testament. And I, I, I think, I would like to think that early on I began to understand the New Testament a little bit easier and a little bit sooner than I started to understand the Old Testament. Uh, it would be impossible for me to try to imagine only having an Old Testament and coming to uh, some of these conclusions. It would take some spiritual discernment to do that. So here they're, they're, they're exercising spiritual discernment in this issue. And secondly, if you look back to chapter 12, John 12, verse 34, they say, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Now, notice in that question that they're discerning that Jesus is claiming to be the Christ. Now, sometimes you'll have people, and I have some of the commentaries in my office, and uh, me and Dustin were talking about this not very long ago, and uh, this does not make for some of the best reading. I mean, this is a good sleeping pill. Some of these modern commentaries that are very academic, especially when they begin to wrestle with some of the academic skepticism that's going on right now, and I don't want to put anybody to sleep here. I'm not going to go into that, but it'll go on for page after page after page, and you'll have people uh, saying, well, you know, uh, I think John uh, added this verse at a later time because the crowd wouldn't have known the Son of Man. They simply wouldn't have known the Son of Man. Well, he's in verse 23. If you look back to verse 23, Jesus has said the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, and that's his response to the Greeks that are looking for him, right? It's his favorite self-designation. Um, you could correct me if I'm wrong, and I meant to look this up, and I didn't have time to look it up, but I'm going to draw from memory. And this is just from memory, so it could be an error, but I think it's accurate that the Son of Man appears 83 times in the gospel. And of those 83 occurrences, 81 of them are Jesus describing himself as the Son of Man. The only other two uh, instances are in verse 34, where the crowds use the words Son of Man twice. So it's his favorite designation of himself. And what are they asking in verse 34? We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? So they're discerning enough from Jesus that he is claiming to be the Christ. And they're confused, they're perplexed. Because they also discern a third thing. And what is that? That when Jesus says he must be lifted up, they are discerning that he is to be executed, either a hanging or a cross. Because what are they saying? What are they asking? Well, we have discerned from the law that the Christ remains forever. So how can you say that you have to be lifted up? Well, they're discerning rightfully. What Jesus is describing is the necessity of his coming death. They recognize that. Um, they recognize that. So they knew the Son of Man to be a reference to Jesus to himself. They understood this lifting up to be a hanging or a crucifixion. And so they're perplexed. And what do they ask lastly in that verse? Who is the Son of Man? And my point right now is, okay, they don't discern the voice from heaven. They're lacking the spiritual discernment to discern the, Lord, the voice from heaven. Uh, but they have a lot of discernment going on here, so we need to be careful. 
Uh, we need to be careful because they're still in the dark, aren't they? Uh, they're still in the dark because at the end of the day, what are they asking? Who is the Son of Man? Who is he? They don't know him. They don't know him. Now, they ask this question, perplexed, who is the Son of Man? And I think, really, the attentive reader is expecting verse 35 to say something like this. Well, the Son of Man is this. You know, uh, turn in your Bibles back to uh, Daniel chapter 7, and I'll give you a whole thing on Daniel 7. But that's not what Jesus does, is it? If you look at verse 35, what does he say? The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light. The light is among you. Here we are, light again. You know, the light keeps coming up in John's gospel, doesn't it? You know, what, what I like about John's gospel is when you read it the first time, you know, if you've been reading other books in the Bible, you know, um, you might just scratch your head and say, you know, I've read for pages, and I have no idea what I just read. But I read John, and I get it. You know, he talks about light, and he talks about darkness, he talks about this, talks about, you know, light, of course, light is truth, light is purity, light is holiness, light is righteousness, and darkness is evil, and it's all that other stuff. And, you know, we can get that quickly, can't we? But here's the deceptive thing. As you begin to study John's gospel more deeply, then you really start to scratch your head. Well, I don't want to just be on the surface here with this light thing, Lord. Take me down into the depths. What exactly is this light? What exactly is it? Oh, then you, find, then you begin to discover that no man could have wrote this book because this book is so deeply profound. Uh, that you almost, I find myself time after time after time again looking at simple phrases like light and finding myself completely lost in them. I'll give you some examples. If you turn back to John chapter 1, in the prologue, uh, this is where we first discover these metaphors that are being used here. You know, we're told in verse 4 that in him, that is in the eternal word, was life. In him was life. Now, what does that mean? I was sharing a thought very similar to this yesterday. There was a derby um, uh, day down at the park yesterday, and I had the wonderful privilege of being able to pray for uh, a lot of these jockeys. Many of them come from all over the place uh, for this derby. A lot of them uh, just go from these high-stakes places to high-stakes places, and the place was full. And um, I was, uh, one of the reasons that we used Psalm 145 this morning is I, I did a devotion from Psalm 145 where I was talking about extolling the Lord. To extol the Lord means to enthusiastically praise Him, to extol the Lord and to extol Him for His greatness. And one of the things that we find out about the greatness of God, and one of the things that I shared with them was this, that He is the author of all life, whether it is a thousand-pound stallion or a thousand-pound horse, or whether it is you and your heart beating in your chest, or whether it is some organism that we can't even hardly see on a microscope. He is the author of it all. He is the one who has created it. He is the one who is sustaining it. And he knows everything about it. If I have some cancer in my body, I might not know about it, but he does. If I have something wrong with me, it may, be, it may be months or even years before I know anything about it. He knows it right now. And he knows it about me, and he knows it about the little amoebas or whatever they are. You guys can tell me about those little amoebas because that's not my area. 
But I know you have to have a microscope to see them, and they're living creatures, aren't they? And they're important. They play a role in this whole thing. And he has to determine how many of these creatures are. I understand we have bugs all over us. It's not a very comforting thought. You know, the, the commercial goes, uh, you might, some of you have bugs on your mugs, but there ain't no bugs on me. I don't know. Is that how it goes? Um, it's not true, is it? We have all these bugs, and you know, I don't want to freak you out about these bugs. And the only thing you remember about this sermon is we got bugs all over us. Uh, want to do that? You got Spurgeon used to warn about illustrations. Don't use an illustration that's too strong. They'll go home. That's all they'll think about. I think I'm in the danger of committing that error right now. But in him is life, isn't it? In him is life. And we're told in verse 4 that the life was the what? The light of man. The light of man. And in verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Drink of this, everyone. Drink of this because it will magnify your personal ability to worship the Lord. This light who has created all life, who knows whether this amoeba is going to live another two seconds or not, knows every amoeba by name, also knows us by name. He became flesh and dwelt among us. And he is the light. He is the light. And he is the life. And that's what he says in John 8, isn't it? We spent a lot of time in John 8, but we didn't develop John 8 all the way. I want to take it a step further this morning. If you go to John 8, chapter 12. John 8, chapter 12. And if you look right there, what does Jesus say? Jesus spoke to them again, and he said, I am the light of the world. That's a powerful statement. He is the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Now, he's saying that. You recall, just to remind you, he's saying this in the wake of a ceremony known as the rite, R-I-T-E, the rite of lights, where they would light up these torches in honor and commemoration of the pillar of fire that led the fathers through the wilderness back in the days of the wilderness wanderings. So in the wake of this ceremony of the rite of lights, Jesus steps up and says, I am the light of the world. And what he is saying with the combination of the I am statement and the light of the world is he's saying, I am that pillar of fire that led you in the darkness. And that's why if you follow me, you won't be in darkness. But you're going to be in light. And what is Jesus also saying with that? He is saying that he is God's self-disclosure. I could use the word self-revelation. Maybe someone would stumble over the word revelation. What does that mean? How about disclosure? He discloses God's attributes. He discloses God's glory. In theology, we have this word called objectification. Has anybody ever heard that word? Objectification. It's not bad. If you take the ification off of it, you have object. And what Jesus does is he makes all of these otherwise abstract qualities of God, he puts them before us as an object before our eyes that we can see. That's why Jesus says, listen, uh, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Not because Jesus is the Father, but because he is the objectification, if you will, of the Father. 
In other words, he is the object of, you know, the author to the letter of Hebrews says he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. So what is he? He is the radiance of God's love. He's the radiance of God's wisdom. He's the radiance of God's sovereignty. He's the radiance of God's truth. He's the radiance of his knowledge, his purity, his holiness. He is purity. He's purity walking, isn't he? He's holiness walking. He's righteousness walking. He's all of these things walking. This one in whom is all life came and dwelt and walked among us so that we could see him. And in John chapter 9, Jesus works this out right in front of our very eyes. In verse 5, he's approaching a man who was born blind, who has never seen anything. He says, I am, as long as I am in the world, I'm the light of the world. And in verse 6, he spit on the ground. He made mud with saliva. He anointed the man's eyes with the mud. Gave him this instruction, go to the pool of Siloam and wash in the pool of Siloam. And the man comes back seeing. He comes back seeing. This formerly blind man receives light. But I want to go a step further because you've heard me say that already several times. And I don't want to just simply repeat myself. I want to go a step further to say that he does more than receive light. Light becomes an inner possession. Did you catch that? I know it's hard to be attentive for this long a time. Sometimes your mind can go fishing. I'll repeat it. Light becomes an inner possession. He actually now has light. How do we know that? If you look at verse 38, in fact, for context's sake, look at verse 35. They throw him out. You know, they cast him out. He, Jesus hears that the man's been cast out. And Jesus comes to him and says, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answers in verse 36, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus says, You've seen him, and it's he who is speaking to you. And then he says, Lord, I believe, and he worships him. This man is not just standing in light. Because for that matter, we go back to John chapter 12, the crowds are standing in the light because the light's in front of him. He's not just standing in the light. He has received the light. And now the light becomes an inner possession. Uh, more about that here in a few moments, but let's go back to let's go back to John chapter twelve because I hear the parliamentarian saying, "Hey, uh, Rick, there's still a question on the floor, and the question on the floor is, who is the Son of Man? Who is He?" And Jesus is answering, "The light is among you for a little while longer." What is Jesus saying? Some of them say, and some people do say that Jesus doesn't answer him. Well, actually, Jesus is answering them. He is answering them. Uh, and he's answering in this way. He's basically saying, listen, the answer to all your questions are right in front of you. The answer to all of the questions that you're ever going to ask, you're ever even going to think about asking, are right in front of you because the radiance of God's glory is right before you. The radiance of God's glory is right here. And he says in verse 35, walk while you have the light. And what Jesus is basically saying is take advantage of the opportunity before you. Make use of the light that stands before you. Take hold of the light that you're hearing. And if you look at verse 35, he adds these words, lest darkness overtake you. And lest darkness overtake you. Now, in theology, I think it was J.I. Packer who I first read this from. Uh, again, I'm drawing by memory and I meant to look that up too and I forgot. Um, but I think it was J.I. Packer that said theology is, in the, theology is a lot like coins. And he might have been quoting one of the old divines, I don't know, but I think it was J.I. Packer. 
And he said, theological truths are like coins. There are two sides. And there are two sides to what Jesus is doing here in verse 35, for sure. There's a human side, and there's a divine side. And on the human side, fallen, unbelieving man is, in, is, is much more than simply darkness. We need to understand. We talk like this all the time. We talk like um, we think about our culture, we think about loved ones, we think about relatives that are still uh, walking apart from Christ, and very commonly we'll say they're just still in darkness, they're just still in darkness, they're just still in darkness. That is a true statement. They are still in darkness, but actually the more accurate statement is they are darkness. I don't know if you understand that or not. As an unbeliever, I wasn't just walking in darkness. I was darkness. And that's a much stronger statement. That's a much stronger statement. People at the present hour here, as Jesus is talking to them, they're not simply in darkness. They actually are darkness. And what Jesus is saying to them is at the present hour, there's a way of escape. All they have to do is take the hold of the light. But if they let this opportunity pass, this darkness that they're in and this darkness that they are will actually become a, such a permanent reality that will overtake them for all eternity. Does that make sense? Now, some would say, okay, um, um, okay, um, where's the divine side of that? Well, verse 35, the one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. You see that in verse 35? Jesus says, the one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, blind, folks who are blind, folks who are deaf, uh, folks who have no understanding, who are bent on evil, fallen man, uh, who has no idea about the end of his, uh, where his path is taking him. He has no idea that it's taking him to misery. Um, listen, they are darkness. They're not just in darkness. They are darkness. Now, some of them say, Rick, you know, these are strong statements you're making here. Do you have any proof of these statements? Yeah, I'll offer you this proof. Pay attention to culture. Just watch. Or do this. Go try to start a Bible study someplace. Just gather a group of people that, you know, that, that you love, maybe that you work with, and say, listen, I want to start a Bible study. See how easy that is to do. I know how hard that is to do. I'm a guy that starts Bible studies. That ain't easy to do. Why is it so hard to do? Well, because we're not just in darkness. We are darkness. Um, and the Holy Spirit must work in the fallen heart to believe. You want to get a good Bible study going, and you want to see people come to faith, you better have, the only way that's going to be a possibility is God's going to have to be in there. Because you are not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. There isn't a one of us that's going to do that. Uh, we can't do that kind of, only God can do that kind of work. So here Jesus is saying, the light is among you for a little while. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. Here we have both the divine, the human side of this. We have the divine side of this. But then Jesus fleshes it out. He goes a little further in verse 36. He says, while you have the light, believe in the light. While you have the light, believe in the light. What does he mean by believing in the light? Um, 
walking. He's explaining what walking means in verse 35 with the word believing in verse 36. He says, the light is among you for a little while. Walk while you have the light. In verse 36, while you have the light, believe in the light. Believing and walking, walking and believing. It's a lifestyle, if you will. It's a lifestyle. Um, you know, um, believing is not simply saying yes to some loose ideas, facts, or propositions. Uh, I could put it this way. Believing is not simple as reciting the Apostles' Creed. Because an unbeliever can recite the Apostles' Creed. And an unbeliever can embrace a lot of loose propositions and a lot of facts. Uh, no, what's the difference? Believers... What is a believer? A believer is a person who has been completely transformed. He is a person who has been so totally transformed that they are no longer what they used to be. They were formerly a son or a daughter of darkness, and now they have become children of light. If you look at verse 36 again, while you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. In other words, believe in the light so that you may become something that you are not at the moment. Believe in the light so that you may become something that you have never been before. Believe in the light so that you can be transformed from a son or a daughter of darkness into a son or daughter of light. Now, we made it to our phrase. Let me offer you a few things about this phrase. First thing about this phrase, and this is one of the most wonderful truths there is, is all believers are either sons or daughters of light. If you're a believer, uh, you have been fundamentally changed. A believer is not someone who embraces the Apostles' Creed or the Ten Commandments only, although believers do embrace the Apostles' Creed and the Ten Commandments. Yes, we embrace those things. But that isn't what makes us believers. A believer is someone who has been transformed by the hands of God. He is fundamentally a changed person. You hear me quote all the time from 2 Corinthians 5, but I want to look, just take you there. Sometimes people say, that verse you quote all the time. I've tried to find it the other day. And Well, go to 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5. I never like to do all this flipping around, but I... I've been doing it for the last, I don't know, year or so, and I think it's helpful because as you turn there, you, you start to see where all these verses are. And in verse um, 17 there and part of verse 18, the Apostle Paul is there saying, if anyone is in Christ, and you hear me saying this all the time, I quote this all the time, if he's in Christ, he's a new creation. He is a new creation. Or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. That son or daughter of darkness has passed. Behold, the new has come. In verse 18a, if you will, all of this is from God. God did it. He does it in such a way. He is such a marvelous surgeon. You know, sometimes they say a surgeon is a great surgeon because a surgeon doesn't, this surgeon doesn't inflict as much pain as, as some other surgeon who might be described as a butcher. Oh, they'll butcher you up, but this surgeon's a great surgeon. God works in our hearts with such skill that we think we're doing it all the while, don't we? We think it's all our idea. We think it's all our stuff. And some people go on believing that for their entire lives, what they don't come to understand. And the most glorious part of that isn't that we decided for Jesus. Why wouldn't we if we weren't in our right minds? That shouldn't be anything shocking. What's amazing is that of eternity's past. 
The only reason that we're in Jesus is because he, because he did this transforming work in us. Wait a second. Lord, I'm not the person that wins things. I'm not the person that wins the lottery. I'm not the person that wins the blue ribbon. I'm not the person even wins whatever color that ribbon is that they give out last. I don't even know what color it is. I'm not the one that wins that stuff. And I, I am not, actually. I got one blue ribbon from something. And I brought it home, and it was home long enough. Mom's so proud of it. She puts it in the kitchen. She sets it up on the counter, and what happened to it? It fell down behind the, it fell down behind the counter, and it was never seen again for probably 25 years. And it's not blue anymore. I'm not the one that wins those things. But you want to know something? Jesus transformed me. All that other stuff's trivial. It doesn't matter. And no one's going to care in eternity about any of these accomplishments. I, was a, I, I, I wasn't just in darkness. I was darkness. And now I am not just in light. I am light. I am light. And it's God's gracious, sovereign doing. The work of his sovereign, gracious hands. This is a, this is, you know, this is, this is a matter of praise. I mean, as this begins to sink into the cranium and in the heart, um, it will, um, it will produce um, praise. So all believers are sons and daughters of light. Secondly, all believers are products of the light. You know, the interesting thing about son of light, it reminds you of son of whatever, right? Um, you turn to the pages of the New Testament, and how's it start? You know, Abraham begat such and such. You know, Abraham begat Isaac. Isaac begat Jacob. Jacob begat Judah. Judah begat Perez. And down the then after that, you can hardly pronounce the names, right? And you just skim down fast, and you get to the story, right? Um, one fathers another one, fathers another one, fathers another one. There's a sense where each one is produced by the former, right? And the same thing is taking place here. The sons of light... The phrase itself implies begetting. The light begets the son of light, if you will. And we're in 2 Corinthians, and while we're there, why don't you look at verse 6, one of the most wonderful gospel truths and insights into the gospel of all the New Testament. There the apostle Paul says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. A lot of prepositional phrases in that one, isn't there? Uh, I'll read it again. For God, who said, let light shine. There's that light shining, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And he's recalling the creation event of God creating light, saying, let there be light, let light appear. But I think he's also recalling his own personal conversion. And I'll tell you why I think that. If you keep your place in 2 Corinthians 4 and you turn, turn to Acts chapter 22, Acts 22. And you look at Acts 22, starting with verse 6. There Paul is recounting his conversion experience. There he says, I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon. A great light. There we are with light again. A light from heaven suddenly shone around me. I fell to the ground. I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? He doesn't know who he is. There's a man who probably memorized the entire Old Testament, doesn't know who the Lord is. Who are you, Lord? He doesn't know him. Who are you? He answered, Saul, Saul. Um, now he falls to the ground. I'm sorry, I lost my place here. Who are you, Lord? Uh, he answers, I am Jesus, 
whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with him, verse 9, saw the light, but did not understand the voice of one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you'll be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, was well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers, verse 14, appointed you to know his will to see the righteous one. Paul saw with his eyes the righteous one. You hold on to that and you go back to 2 Corinthians 4. I think that's the thought that's in his mind when he says, let light shine out of darkness. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Oh, he knows this light already. He was blinded by it. But he has shown with this light in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the very face. He saw Christ's face. He saw the righteous one. He saw him. He would have to have seen him. In order to be qualified to be an apostle, he had to see him. He saw him with his eyes. Saw him. So it's the light, if you will, that begets light. The light produces the light. Paul blinded by the light, but enabled to see the face of Jesus. Listen, all believers have received this light. If you're a believer this morning, you have received this light. Some will say, well, I, don't have, I never got knocked down on the road, uh, and I've never been to Damascus. Well, listen, um, it may have been something that has happened gradually. Most of us probably happened gradually, but it may have been something that happened in a relatively short period of time. But either way, if you're a believer in Christ, you've seen the light. Um, besides, that's what Hank Williams sang about, right? I saw the light. Is that what he sang about? A little bit of humor is good when we're in the midst of this. Thirdly, all believers are light. And as I look around, I think this is probably the one maybe we're struggling with. Because I've made a couple statements, haven't I? That I said, I am light. I once was darkness, but now I am light. Now, where would I get that from? Ephesians 5, verse 8. Take a look at Ephesians 5 and verse 8. And this is where we're getting both of the comments I've been making. What's Paul say in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8? He says, at one time you were what? You weren't just in darkness. You were darkness. And you were delighting in darkness because that was your nature and that's what you loved. And you were delighting in it. That, you were delighting in it because you were darkness. But then what's he going to say after that? You, but now... You are light in the Lord. You are light. Sons of darkness or sons of disobedience are not simply those that are in darkness. They are darkness. But conversely, a son or a daughter of light is not simply those that are in the light. You are light. You are light. Now, a believer is not simply someone who follows a nice moral compass. 
A lot of times, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, you know, I have to worry about such and such. They're headed to heaven. And they'll go on about all of the wonderful things that they do. And again, I mean, I know some of these folks, they do a lot of wonderful things, and they are great people. But they do not bow their knees to the lordship of Jesus. Now, there's light in their life, but it's a borrowed light. That's the way Martin Lord Jones used to put it. They're borrowing light from Jesus, but they haven't received it from him. They're still in darkness, even though that's one of the devil's favorite things to do, by the way, is fill villains with good deeds. You know, some of the, some of the most villainous people, you know, donated money to build gymnasiums and do all these things. Well, it's a cloak. You know, make the public like me. Then I can delight in more and more corruption, and no one's going to bother me. You know, it's one of the devil's favorite schemes here is to do this. But Paul says, no, 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 no. This is not so with a person who, a person who is a true believer. You at one time, you were darkness, but now, no, now, um, you are light. And let me, let me be clear here. We don't become divine. Some people teach that. They take Peter's words uh, that you, uh, now we've become partakers of the divine nature, and you'll hear people talk about how we become little gods running around, and that's, that's, that's nonsense. That's, that's silliness. When Peter talks about partaking of the divine nature, he's talking about partaking of the Holy Spirit and the image of God being rebuilt and recreated in us is what Peter is talking about. And here to receive the light, uh, this light is the Lord's light, but we become possessors of it, and we now become children of it. Uh, we were children of wickedness and darkness, but now we become children of light. Real fast, a couple proofs. How can we know if we're children of light? Um, if you look at Ephesians 10, Ephesians 5, verse 10, Paul tells those who are in the light to try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. That's one of the ways really fast. A person who simply mentally assents to truths, facts, propositions doesn't do this. He doesn't, come, he doesn't do this. He doesn't care whether his actions please the Lord or not. He doesn't think about that. He usually compartmentalizes his faith. His faith is put into a glove box. It's brought out on certain occasions, but in terms of the warp and woof of his life, he's guided by another principle. It's usually a selfish principle. Um, he doesn't do this. Um, uh, secondly, a pretender isn't going to do this. A pretender might, might try to do this, uh, but for the wrong reason. Um, he may try to do, he may learn things that are pleasing to the Lord, and he may try to do them, but he's going to do them for an outward show. He's going to do them to be seen by others. Um, so that's something that uh, would be somewhat of a pretender uh, to do. He's still serving himself because he wants to look and appear on the outside to be something that he's not on the inside. Or the worker, we might call him the worker, the one who refuses the light, uh, to instead try to become light himself. He, this person, this dis person might discover what pleases the Lord, but he's going to get busy doing things not out of gratitude to the Lord, but so that he can create his own light. And he doesn't become a son um, of light, if you will. He becomes sort of a son of himself. Um, he is himself begetting himself. He is not the light uh, begetting himself. And you, you, you do ministry for a little while, you're going to see examples of all of these. Um, you know, simply he's never going to get there because he just simply doesn't believe. He doesn't believe he's fallen as far as he has. He doesn't believe salvation. Salvation can only be had as we abort, as we abort our self-effort. Um, secondly, the Son of Light's quite different. He believes. Um, he believes uh, through faith 
that he's been. And then through faith he becomes. That's back to uh, John 12, verse 36. He believes in the light, and through that becomes a child of life. Um, so um, the last question I guess we'll ask, and I'll close, because I fear I may have gone too long. But um, are we children of light? You know, it's a question asked. Um, one final diagnostic that I already brought up earlier in the service is, do we love the church? You know, it came out in my pastoral prayer, something I've been thinking about all week, and it's one of the diagnostics that John uses in his first letter. We can know that we've passed from death into life because we love the brothers. Let's ask ourselves the question, do we love the church? Who is the church? The church are those whom Jesus has, has died to save. Do we love one another? Uh, do we miss one another when we're not here? Do we, uh, do we long to be with one another? These are all marks. So, uh, at any rate, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these great truths that we look at this morning and we study, Father. And, Father, we do pray that, Lord, you fill our hearts, O oh, Father, with these things, Lord. And if there's anybody here sitting here, Lord, um, that maybe has not moved past the point of mental ascent, this, all of this might sound, maybe sounds foreign. Father, we pray, Lord, you would cause that light to shine, and not only just to shine in their hearts so that they would be merely standing in the light, but, but Father, you would cause the, the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ to shine in their hearts. But Father, they would behold you in your beauty and your glory and be transformed from one state to the next. And, Father, for those who have been brought into the light. Father, may we praise you. And may we praise you from our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to stand as we sing our concluding song this morning. I've heard of you, how you hung the stars, though you hold all things. Your hands are scarred. I've heard of you, how you laid the earth, but you spilled your blood into this dirt. I've heard so many things, but now I see.
love you how you made the earth but you drug your cross through this dirt heavenly father oh lord we thank you you've sent the light of the world into the world oh father and he's shown in the darkness and we thank you oh father that he has shown in our hearts Oh, Father, if anyone is in Christ this morning, oh, how we must rejoice, oh, Father. For you have transformed us, oh, Lord. You have made us new creation. You have transformed us from being darkness now to being light. And, oh, Lord, we thank you. And as we go forth from this place, oh, Lord, oh, Father, we pray that, Lord, you would cause us to shine. For Jesus calls his church to shine before this dark world. And, oh, Lord, now seeing that we can do this, oh, Father, because of what you've done in our lives Cause us to shine as we go forth from this place, O Father. Cause your light to shine upon us and cause us to shine uh, all around us, O Father. And may the love, the joy, and the peace of the Holy Spirit and the triune God be upon us now and forevermore. In his name we pray. Amen.